Let's pray real quick before we dive in. Heavenly Father God, we just humble ourselves before you right now. Thinking about the amazing grace that we have been saved. Lord, we were blind, but now we see. Lord, we were in the dark, but you brought us to the light. Father God, we thank you for that. Lord, as we thought about Calvary and what was done there for us, your son that you didn't spare, but gave him up for us, the punishment he bore on our behalf, Father, that is not a small thing. And as we ponder that, as we think about that, in light of our text tonight, I pray Father, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts, that you'd open up our hearts, that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. Father, this is a mighty task to speak on your behalf, and I am foolish to think I can do it on my own. Father, I pray right now that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would help me speak with clarity that the individuals you brought into this room tonight would be encouraged, would be exhorted, their their hearts would be stirred, they would be motivated by the gospel. And Lord, if there's an unbelieving heart amongst us, I pray, dear Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would allow Satan to cease right now, that our minds would be focused, that we would receive with clarity, that we would not be only hearers, but we would be doers of your word. Father, we ask and pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So tonight we're going to continue on our journey through the book of 1 Peter as we look at the next two verses in verse 6 and 7. AJ and Chase have done extremely well these past two weeks in laying the foundation both in the historical aspect as well as the contextual information in the previous five verses. Uh, My goal tonight is pretty simple. My desire is to walk you through uh, these verses in 6 and 7, phrase by phrase, and explain to you what Peter wants us to understand as the readers. If you have not already turned with me, please turn to 1 Peter as we look at verses 6 and 7. It says, In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. The first part of our verse, in verse 6, says, In this you rejoice. What is this? In this that Peter is referring to. Peter is referring to what he just told us in the previous three verses that Chase talked about last week in verses 3 through 5. Chase summarized them beautifully last week if you were here, and if you weren't, you can listen to the message on our podcast or any of them that you might miss in, in the future. John Piper uh, describes these verses as he says, Mercy from God produces new birth which produces living hope 
in an objective, unshakable, never-fading inheritance. Thus we are being kept by God and are secure. And thus we say, blessed be God, and we are brought to worship and praise. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christian life, that we, too, we are to bless God, to worship and to praise Him. That's why we were made, to, to glorify Him and to honor Him. Here we can see that Peter is mainly talking about our salvation that produces a living hope due to the finished work of Christ Jesus, specifically in his resurrection. We are called to live lives in joyful delight in God according to who he is, what he has done, and what he says he will do. As Peter uh, gave his doxology last week, as in, in verse 3, he said, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To, to start things off after he introduces the letter, he, he starts off in praise. We, we should come and, and praise and joy in what, what the Savior has done for us. The next part of the phrase is, you rejoice. As I just said, uh, we are called to live lives that are in, in joyful delight in God. These believers he's talking to were rejoicing. What are they rejoicing in exactly is my question. They're rejoicing because they're being kept by the power of God. Like these believers, we have hope that is living. It is active. It is alive. As Peter said, it is our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's being kept by the power of God. This, my friends, is the hope we are to rejoice in. The next part of the verse says, Though now for a little while, if necessary. Remember who Peter is addressing. Holy elect exiles. Who is that? Well, it's Christians who are currently, in this moment, experiencing suffering, temptation, and affliction. I would briefly like to break this down into three parts. The first, as he said, Though now for a little while. This means it's current, it's active, it's ongoing, it's a present circumstance. It's happening in the lives of these believers. It should be happening in the lives of us as well. Paul, a man who knew and greatly experienced suffering throughout his life, says that this current suffering that these believers are experiencing is light and momentary. And it's not only light and momentary, but it is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Nothing, and I mean that, nothing that you are going through right now, as big as it may seem, can compare to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for you. And that's not to make light of anything you're going through, but rather it's to do the exact opposite and to give you a biblical perspective of your suffering. James illustrates this similarly as he poses a question to his readers in chapter 4, uh, in verse 14, in his letter. He says, What is your life? He asks. He says, What is your life? He answers, For you are but a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Think about that. Our life. Everyone has a, a bottle of uh, Febreze or some type of cleaning supply in your home. You spray it. The mist appears for how long? Maybe a second or two, if that. James is referring to our life being just that small. It's gone in an instance. Just is 
to your, your affliction and suffering. That's this life currently. It is momentary. It is fleeting. It is here for a second. Then it is gone. The following part of this phrase says, If necessary. And while I read this verse, just as you might have read it, just listening to me say it, you might quickly go over these two words and just read right over them. And we should stop. We should read Scripture very uh, intentionally and, and to read it slowly. And, and these words, if necessary, mean, mean so much to the context of what, Paul is, or what Peter is saying. And if you think about the life we're called to as Christians, it, it helps us give a better understanding of, of what he's talking about. A commentator say that these two words mean not if, but rather when this will happen. In other words, as Piper says, if and when God deems necessary. This is huge. He's not saying if this happens to you, if this happens to some of you. No, but it will happen to all of you. This is a level playing field that Peter is telling. And Paul would affirm this in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, uh, verse 29, where he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is the life we're called to, a life of suffering for the glory of God. Just as Christ suffered and then entered into glory, so too will we, his followers, suffer before being exalted into glory. I'm going to say that again. Just as Christ suffered on the cross, as he was beaten, as he was nailed, as he was punished for your iniquity, you too will suffer. And not only that, as Christ was exalted and glorified, you too, after suffering, as a believer in Christ, will be glorified. George Whitfield comments on this, saying, There is not a single saint in paradise amongst the godly fellowship of the prophets, the glorious company of the apostles, the noble army of martyrs, and the spirits of just men made perfect, who when on earth was not assaulted by the fiery darts of the wicked one, the devil. As we move on to the last phrase of verse 6, we see Peter say, You have been grieved by various trials. Chase talked about this a little bit last week, and you did a, a good job describing this. Here we get a glimpse into the purpose of who Peter is writing to, and essentially why he is writing to them. Up until this point, we have seen he is writing to believers who are spread out across the Roman Empire that are experiencing these various trials. It is believed that Peter penned this letter under the emperor of Nero. And Nero, if you don't know anything about him, was arguably the deadliest persecutor of Christians in history up until this point during the early church. He was said to put living Christians on stakes to be burned alive in order that he would light up his garden parties for entertaining his friends and his, his, his family members. It was said that he also burned a large part of the city, placing the blame on the Christians, among other things. I want to note something here that's pretty important that Chase described last week, that these various trials is translated into temptations to sin. This is important because if you've listened to anything of what I've said up until this point, you might think, 
well, that's the nice historical things, but what does that have to do with me? I'm not experiencing uh, fiery trials like the persecution of Nero. But Peter has you in mind. This encompasses everything. And, and when I say everything, I mean it. Various trials. This is everything. This is not something that is randomly occurring or is by any sort of chance. Meaning that this is applicable to us as believers today. We may not ever experience a, experience a trial like those under Nero. But we will most certainly experience the temptation to sin daily. Peter references this later on in chapter 4, where he basically says that this temptation to sin is the greatest form of suffering and is shared among all brothers across the world. All Christians share this, the temptation to sin daily. In fact, it is the most difficult form of suffering. Think about it. If you were to suffer in an instant with someone uh, to come in here and, and ask you to recant your faith and, and die in an instant, just in that moment, is that harder? Or rather, living a life for 50 years and each and every day, multiple times of day, Satan attacking you with the temptation to sin. It would be a lot harder, in my opinion, to fight daily temptation to sin and to submit to Christ and his word than to say, no, I don't recant my faith, bang, you're dead, game over, right there. Right? That's, that's the most someone can do to you, is kill you. That's the most they can do you. That, that's a glorious thing. The most they can do is kill you. This life is temporary. It's fleeting, along with its passions and desires. It, it's going away. And, and, and might I add that that would be the day you go to return to your maker. This is applicable for us today. Please, please, please get that. This is applicable for us today. This is an ongoing experience as us as believers as we are faced with this daily. The fight to resist sin. This is one of the main contexts here as Chase explained and said that beautifully uh, last week. This is applicable for us as believers today. These things are causing immense amount of grief in the life of a believer. I want to take some time and look at this a little bit closer as we compare it with another passage that addresses this head on. If you're a fast flipper, put your finger here and turn with me quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 13, and specifically, I'm going to point something out in verse 10. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive grace of God in vain, for he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, 
Through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as the children, widen your hearts also. I specifically want to uh, address verse 10. I, I just read the first few verses so you could get the context uh, of what Paul is saying here. And, and in verse 10, we see him say something similarly to what Peter is addressing uh, to the believers here in 1 Peter. The believers in 1 Peter are grieved in the same way that Paul says the Corinthians are sorrowful. In fact, the, the Greek word here is interchangeable. It's the same word that Paul uses as sorrowful as Peter uses in 1 Peter as grieved. Likewise, notice they are rejoicing in both times. As Paul commands them to be sorrowful, yet rejoicing in the same way, we see Peter say, you're grieved by various trials in the same way you are also rejoicing. They are both grieved or sorrowful, yet are rejoicing at the same time. Before you turn back to 1 Peter, I would like to look at another text. So turn with me to Hebrews 10 before we jump back into 1 Peter. I want to take your attention to verses 32 uh, through 39. Verse 32 of Hebrews says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteousness My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. The writer of Hebrews is making the point that you are enduring these hard struggles. He goes on to list examples of that in being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction in verse 33. I want to draw your focus specifically here to verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. We see the eternal mindset of this believer, the confidence that they had. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their earthly possessions because they knew... They had a better one. Continue to verse 35. Therefore, because of that, do not throw away your confidence. 
Why are we not to throw away our confidence? Because it has a great reward. Our inheritance. It is to spend eternity with Christ Jesus our Lord. The writer of Hebrews continues in verse 36 as he says that we have, no, we have need of this confidence. He's building here. We have a need of this confidence because we are going to what? Endure. We will suffer. We will endure according to the will of God so that we may receive what is promised to us. The guarantee of our inheritance. He ends beautifully in the final three verses encouraging us not to shrink back in our faith but to persevere. So turn with me back to to 1 Peter as we uh, look at verse 7. As we transition now to verse 7, we find out why this is happening. Why are they, these believers here, why are we being grieved by various trials? And how are we to rejoice while this is happening? Peter tells us in the next verse where he says, So that the tested of your faith, excuse me, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you notice, I skipped the section in the middle, uh, which it will be, we'll come back to in a second, so you can see the flow of, of Peter's sentence. So we are being tested to see the genuineness of our faith, and not only that, but also that it would be found to result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ returns. There's a lot to unpack here. Did we just read that Peter said our faith is to be tested to see if we are genuine or or not by these various trials? Yes, I, I believe that's exactly what he is saying. Remember what we talked about last week and the week before. You are exiles. You are elect exiles. You are born again according to the great mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. Our living hope is an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Why? Because it is kept in heaven for you by the power of God himself. He is the one who is going to sustain you. He is the one who will protect you. He is the one who will strengthen you. He will uphold you with his righteous right hand. He began a good work in you. And he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Now I want to address the part that I skipped to before we move on and impact the rest of what Peter is saying. That little parentheses or maybe hyphenated in your Bible says, More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. If you know anything about metal, uh, often when they finish making it or shaping it, they often put it into fire in in order to get out any impurities, to to purify it. This is the comparison, or commentary rather, that Peter is comparing our faith to. He says, it is providing uh, a purification process. This, this various trials that is testing us, these fiery trials, are providing purification for our faith. It is making it, it genuine. It's proving that it is genuine. Gold that is perishable, though it is tested by fire in order to be purified, is just like our faith, except our faith is far greater because it is imperishable. And it is being purified, likewise, through the fire as we are tested. We're tested daily. We're tested daily 
in the fight of sin. Our faith is tested so that it may be found in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is tried and true. This is all to result in something that is to happen in future glory. Peter is talking about something that has already happened, while also talking about something that has not happened yet, known as the already not yet. Meaning that it has happened, but will not come into completion into the day of Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. You, as a believer in Christ, are currently, right now, as you stand, spotless. You're perfect because of the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. You are justified, present. That, that thing has happened in past tense in, in, at Jesus' uh, crucifixion. You are justified, okay? Right now, you are also currently being saved. Present tense. This is an ongoing thing. You are being made holy as Christ is holy. You are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. So you have past tense at the work of the cross. You have also before the foundation of the world, if you want to go that far. Then you have current present tense work as sanctification. And finally... You will, one day in the future, future tense, will be glorified. The summation of your sanctification will make you complete and you will be glorified. Whether in Christ returns or when he takes you home. If that wasn't enough, Peter says three things that your faith will result in. Praise, glory, and honor. This is a summary that the genuineness of your faith will result in your promised inheritance. I want to make this explicitly clear before I continue. Peter is not, and I say this, Peter is not saying that we in any way are to receive this praise, glory, and honor for our faith that is being made genuine, that is being proven genuine through these tested trials. But rather, God is the one who receives it. All of it. All praise, all honor, And all glory goes to him. There are countless, countless verses throughout the Bible that says, God does this, why? For you, for me? No, he does this for his glory, for his namesake. And one verse that says this explicitly is Isaiah 42, 8. It reminds us, as the Lord himself says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. No one. We are to seek not the praise of man, but of God. Your faith will be turned to sight. You will be glorified in full as Christ did when he was ascended. You have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, and that is the guarantee of it. This is all due to the genuineness of your faith, which he has worked in you. As Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Later in 1 Peter 5, in our next semester. I don't know who will go through that. In verse 4, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd, capital S, our shepherd, Lord Jesus himself, appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. This is a promise. This is a guarantee for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, this is the same word that Peter used earlier to describe our 
unfading inheritance in verse 4 of chapter 1. God will receive honor due His name because of your faith. It is genuine. God loses zero, none who come to Him. His name is at stake. He is the one who has accomplished this work in you. What have you done? What have you to boast in? Was it you? No. It was when you were dead He bought you. He raised you to life. This is not something that is working against your joy, but rather it is fueling it because you know that you have a better and abiding possession, as we read in Hebrews 10. This is what is taught throughout the New Testament in the Bible, and it is that we would be found to be glorified with Christ on the last day. This is a Revelation 5 type mentality where we have all believers, all believers with one great voice singing aloud, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I want to exhort you with three exhortations that you can live out based on our text that we've discussed tonight. The first exhortation is to know that your suffering is meant to further is meant to further your sanctification through obedience. What does that mean? Well, it means every day as you wake up, as you battle apathy, as you battle the fight of sin, you have an immense amount of opportunity to obey Christ through these temptations, through these various trials. This encompasses the great things you'll go through in your life. This encompasses the small things, if there is even such a thing. The, the temptation to, to sin is, is the point. And we have an opportunity there each and every day to honor ourselves or to submit to God and His Word and to joyfully delight in Him. The second is to trust in the living hope that you have been born to amidst your various trials. As I said earlier, this is a living hope. It's not dead. Uh, James' whole letter is talking about a, a faith uh, apart from works is dead. We, we were made to walk in works. We weren't made to work in order to receive our salvation, but rather uh, that is evidence, that is fruit showing that we are saved. The Lord is the one who works. Trust in this living hope. Trust in the wisdom of God. And the third and final exhortation is to rejoice in your sufferings. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your sufferings. They are but light and momentary. Your life is but a mist. And not only that, it is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we close our time together tonight, I would like to end with a quote by George Whitfield. He says, Oh, that the God of love may fill us with such peace and such joy that every storm, every trial, every temptation we meet with may be overruled to good for us. All our afflictions, all our temptations are to make heaven more desirable and earth more loathsome. Let us pray. Heavenly Father God, as we, we reflect 
on, on the words that you breathed out. Lord, I pray right now, if there's anything that is not true, I pray that you would allow it to fall to the wayside right now. Lord, I, I pray that your word that has just been planted would fall on um, soft soil. I pray against the work of Satan trying to steal the seed that has just been planted. I pray against the cares of this world, uh, choking it out. I, I pray against the hardness of our hearts. Lord, I pray that this would go down deep into our hearts, into our souls, that it would see uh, the fruit we're showing. It would see our desires, our affections, Lord. Lord, have your way in your people. Have your way. Lord, I pray that it would go well with our souls. Lord, do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.